And if you're visiting with us, we are in a long three-year study. We have one year to go. We have 13 months left, church, so hang in there. Uh, but we are going to take a little detour, and this is why we preach verse by verse, because this allows us to get in topics that we usually wouldn't just pick up. And if you have seen the bulletin, you're like, oh my goodness, 15 points this morning? Yeah, 15 points. Uh, they're going to be about as quick as you pop in something to eat, and it'll go down quick. But we're going to be looking at a very sobering topic this morning, the topic of hell. H-E double hockey sticks is how you were probably taught to say it in school. But this morning, 15 sober realities about hell. I'm going to ask you to go to Mark chapter 9, verses 49 and 50. I want to I launch out from there. But we're going to go through a lot of scripture this morning. You're not going to have time to look it up. It's going to be on the screen. You're not going to have time to write, well, write it down. Go look it up later, okay? Just so you know. But I, this is such a heavy topic, but we've been here the last couple weeks in Mark, and I want to go deeper into this, because you've had a lot of good questions, church, about what this topic is and what it's not, and I want us to go through it as best we can, and we probably still won't answer every question, but we will do our best. But I want you to imagine for a moment, you're walking along a sidewalk, and you see a stranger sitting on the bench, and as you walk by, you notice that he has something in his hands but what it is, you really can't quite make it out. In fact, you don't know what it is. But as you get a little closer, you see that it's a grasshopper. And the man is starting to pluck out the legs of the grasshopper. You think, well, that's just weird. That's just really odd. How would you respond? I mean, would you just be like, whoa, dude, go somewhere else. You're just really off your rocker. Or, or, or maybe you might walk past him a little bit faster. But you're probably not going to confront him over a grasshopper. So let's rewind that scene. Let's say you walk up to the man and, 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 and you see that he's pulling the legs off a frog. How would you respond? You might get a little bit weirded out again, but it's a little bit more disturbing than a grasshopper, but, but would you do anything? So rewind that again. And then you walk by the man, he has a bird in his hands, and he's starting to try to pull the legs off the bird. How would you respond? Would you say something? Would you do something? Would you interact with him? Would you call the cops? Perhaps you might be at least protest the man, but let's rewind that again. And let's say he has a puppy with him, and he's trying to injure that puppy in the same way. And you say, that crosses the line, and, and you, you might not endanger yourself, but this time you're going to call the authorities, right? But let's say you walk up to the stranger, and he's holding a little person in his hands and trying to do the same thing. There's no question what should be done in that. You would move heaven and earth to protect that little one, wouldn't you, from that person? You wouldn't say, oh, that's weird. You would jump in there and clock him one to save that little child from that thing because justice requires you to do that even if it's risky. So what's the difference in these scenarios? Why would you react differently with virtual indifference if he's doing that to a grasshopper against a child? Why would the reaction be different? I mean, in, in, in this situation, the sin is the same. He's trying to dismember those things. But the difference in each of these is the one who is sinned against. The one who is sinned against. And this is why you would move heaven and earth, not to protect the grasshopper probably, but more importantly, to protect the little one. And you react differently because the seriousness of the sin requires that it not be measured simply by the sin itself, the pulling off or dismembering. But you react differently because the value and worth of the one being sinned against. Do you see that connection? 
The more noble and valuable the creature, the more heinous and reprehensible it is to assault that creature. And there is a world of difference, isn't there, between a grasshopper and a baby. Amen? And this is why six out of ten people say that hell is a real place in the most recent survey. Because for many people, as Proverbs 15.11 says, it says, Hell and destruction are before the Lord. How much more than the hearts of the children of men? You see, the underlying question as we look at this tough topic of hell, necessary topic, is that the seriousness of sin and the punishment for that sin is not just simply measured by the sin itself but by the value and worth of the one being sinned against. I mean, if God were a grasshopper, you would think it nothing of no moral consequence if you sinned against him. I mean, what can a grasshopper do to you except get in your lawn and tear it up for the next season, right? But it would be an overreaction if God were like you and me. But God is not a grasshopper. God is holy and infinite. He's compassionate and gracious. He's faithful. He's loving. He's infinitely more precious than the tiniest, cutest baby. He's the first of being. He's the best of being. He's the glory of all things and the worth of all things. So to sin against this God is such that it is an, an infinitely heinous offense that is worthy of an infinitely heinous punishment, just as you would say that person is that tries to do that to a baby. I hope that illustration makes sense because our emotional reflex against the doctrine of hell is such that most people don't even want to talk about it. I mean, Tina and I were looking at songs this week, or Tina was looking at songs this week, like, what songs are out there that talk about this? There's nothing, right? Because we have a watered-down view of what it means to sin against a holy God because we have watered down God. The God of our imagination has become the God of Scripture, not the other way around. And we are so tempted to view the penalty of hell as an overreaction on God's part. Just like we would say, oh, you're just overreacting, that's just a baby. No, it's more than that. My contention this morning is that if we know God better, we would not think like that. And we would begin reading our Bible predisposed, not predisposed against hell. We'd see it on a totally different footing. In fact, the question comes down to this. Is God the kind of God whom this kind of punishment for sin is necessary? Must God react in this way? Must he throw, and you heard that twice, three times in Revelation 20 from Nelson, throw people into hell? Or is he not? What does the Bible say about God and the judgments he brings? And that is the aim of this sermon. We want to answer these questions to argue the Bible teaches that an eternal conscious torment place called hell is real because God's love is real, His character is real, and sin is definitely real. The big idea today is very straightforward. It is very straightforward, and you'll see it on the screen. Hell is a real place populated with real people suffering from real agony, agony in real fire. Avoided at all costs. Trust in Jesus. Amen? Don't run from this opportunity. Don't miss the golden moment of using the fear of hell as a means to see how great and glorious God is, how horrible our sin is, how real our judgment is to come, but the glory of a fearless life of faith for those who know Jesus. If you know Jesus and you're not in hell for one second, you have every reason to be thankful, more than just on the fourth Thursday of every November as it passes through a holiday. 
But the doctrine of hell is crucial. Without it, we can't understand God. But it's possible to stress this in unwise ways. Can I? Many of you have been part of these churches before, where for, for doctrinal compromise, we don't want to put God as being a, a judge of hell, and, and, and we just say, well, that's just, that's just language that's in the Bible, but it's not really real. We, some churches say that it's not just real, it's just, it, that's just to scare people into heaven. You know, many of you have been a part of those uh, 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 Halloween things, I can't think of what they're called, judgment houses, you know, where there's a big, some of you remember these in churches where they have a big car accident outside, and, and they walk you through hell and heaven, and then they put you in a room and almost force you to come to know Jesus. It's really high-pressure sales tactics in a spiritual way, and that's not the right way to do it either. And some preach hell in a way that people reform their lives only out of fear, not out of love. But the distinction between these two is all important. The first creates a moralist. Just do good to get out of hell. And the second creates a born-again believer. That if you love Jesus, you're going to do everything you can to follow him. And we must come to grips with the fact that Jesus said that hell has more to do with anything else in heaven in all his ministry. It's a tough topic. So guys, this morning, if we're able to teach and preach like Jesus, we must address this topic. It's sobering. It's not something you walk up and say, man, we're going to get everyone in the church to come out, and it's going to be so awesome, it's so good. But 15 sobering realities about hell, and I promise we will go through them quickly. But I pray, if you're a Christian here today, that this morning that your desire to glorify God and sharing the gospel is heightened that you go home and say, thank you, Jesus, that you died for my sins. Amen? That you say, Jesus, you love me so much to save me from such a place. But if you're not a Christian here today, not trying to scare you into hell, although it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God, but I want you to know as we consider these things that this is all about God's grace and love, and it is. Will you join me in standing, if you're able, this morning in honor of God's word as we read two verses as a launching pad topical sermon today, Mark 9, 49 through 50. Again, they'll be up on the screen, but I just want you to remind us where we've been a couple weeks ago and then to go from here. Hear God's word this morning. For everyone will be salted with fire. Jesus speaking here. He says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Hear that verse again, verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. And if you remember going up, you'll, you'll remember the uh, even-numbered verses, uh, 44, 46, and 48 says that there people will go where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Wow. Let's go before our Lord as we pray this morning. Father God, as we come before you on a tough, tough topic, but Lord, a necessary one, we pray for your grace. Father, I pray this isn't just beating people over the heads with the Bible, although, Lord, we often, if we're honest, we need that at times. I pray for Christians here this morning that we are more thankful and engaged, thankful to you for saving us and engaged in our world around us to share lovingly and boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those among us who may not know Jesus, that you would, would open their hearts by your Spirit to see that, 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 that life without you is not just a choice to be made and, oh, that's your choice and my choice. This is an eternal consequence, Father, should we reject you. Father, we love you so much that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
You may be seated this morning. As I said, I'm going to go through these. We're going to keep our sermon time about the same. We'll go as far as we can, and if anything else, we'll, we'll put this out on email and Facebook for those who are here that are on those systems. But the first thing I want you to see this morning, and this, this statement right out of the gate, I'm going to tell you, is going to be controversial, even for people who are around Christian churches. But hell is a real place on God's map, as Amy will put that up on the screen. Matthew 8, 12 says, But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness, where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell isn't just a nightmare of a fiction novel. Those who go to hell go to a very real place. It's not just symbolic. It's not just, oh, that's great language. Jesus himself, if we believe his words, says this is a real place. Luke 16, 28, the story of Lazarus and the rich man. This is not on the screen, but the, the, the rich man said, I have five brothers. Go to them and warn them, or they also may come to this place of torment. And James Hudson Taylor, the great missionary, said that, Would that God make hell so real to us that we cannot rest. Hell is a real place. That's number one. We're going to go quickly. Secondly, hell is absolutely necessary. Well, Darren, if God is love, I mean, I mean, what about that? Well, there has to be a hell. You know why? Because the Bible says that the very attributes of God rely on this. God is holy. No sin can be in His presence. God is righteous. Hebrews 2, 2 says that every sin will receive a just punishment. God is love. God loves His people so much, He wants to protect them from these things, that all who will come to Him will be saved. Isn't that awesome? It doesn't matter if you're red, yellow, black, and white. Praise God, we are all precious in His sight. And, and fourthly, another characteristic, God's wrath comes in here. God is angry with the wicked every day. And you see that up on the screen, Psalm 5, verse 4. But Darren, God is love, right? Yes, He is, but it says in Psalm 5, 4, You are not a God that has pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with you. Hell has to be a real place. Hell has to be absolutely necessary because of who God is. Number three, hell is heavily populated. Hell is heavily populated. Get my timer back up here. More people will go to hell than to heaven. How do we know this? Here are Jesus' words from Matthew 7, 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who will enter through it. Jesus said, few are, many are called, but few are chosen. Hell will be filled with the worst of people and the best of people. Even those people who think they're serving God, but who are never truly saved, will be in the bowels of hell. Matthew 7, 21 and 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You cannot go through the narrow gate and walk in the broad path to be considered in this. Hell is heavily populated. But someone will say, well, if, if that's how God is, I don't want to worship this God. I mean, why would he do that? The very fact that he says one of us is grace. Amen? 
If God even saved one person, he is a God of love more than any other so-called God in any so-called religion around the world. There are many roads to hell, but there's one narrow way to heaven. It's through Jesus Christ alone. Hell is a real place. It's necessary. It's populated heavily. Number four, and we mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but hell is not eternal separation from God. I was taught believing this early on in my Christian faith that, that those in hell just kind of go to this dark place and they're like, you go over there, we go over here. It's not correct. Actually, the Bible would say differently. Hell isn't separation for God. Perhaps, shockingly, God will be in hell and God is the one inflicting the punishment in hell. God will be in hell because he's omnipresent. Nelson's favorite chapter, Psalm 139. If I go to heaven, you are there. If I go to the depths of Sheol, to, to hell, literally, you are there. There's not one square inch in which God is not, and hell is absolutely created by his hand. And those in hell won't be inflicting punishment. Uh, Jeff and I were talking in the office earlier about Dante's Inferno, that 14th century uh, uh, Renaissance thing where you see these little little guys with uh, poker sticks, you know what I mean? Little red-tailed devils kind of poking people and all that. That's, that is fiction, guys. The one who can administer the wrath of God will be doing it directly in hell. Revelation 14, verse 12. I mean, think about this. If you could return from hell to clean the bathroom, would you complain? Not at all. Because you know that as you go there, there is no escaping there. Number five, hell is a fiery furnace. Hell is a fiery furnace. This speaks of the severe, intense heat. And, and I, I mean this as it is. I know we have young ones in the rooms, but literally baked alive. Frankly, it's graphic. There's fire, but they're never able to die. The resurrected body of those in hell will be perfectly suited for their new environment in hell, just as those of us in Christ will be given a new heavenly resurrected body, will be perfectly fitted for heaven, so those two who reject Christ will be encased in fire, and there will never be any relief outside of said fire. Matthew 13, 42 on the screen, they will throw them into the blazing furnace where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You can't make this stuff up. Either the Bible, you believe it, or you don't. You take it is, but, but, but Darren, isn't God just going to like snuff them out? Isn't he just going to say, oh, that's, a, oh, ding, your time's up. Would you just cease to exist? No, we'll get there in a minute. There's never a sense where God says, you've had enough time. Because think about this. If God said that to those in hell, why would he not say that to those in heaven? Do you expect to be worshiping Jesus for the rest forever and ever and ever and ever? Amen? Why would God reverse that all of a sudden and give relief to those who rejected him? That seems like an easy out. And God never provides that easy out after death. It's destined for a person to die once and then face the judgment. Hebrews 9, 27. Hell is not only a fiery furnace, number five, but number six, it's a lake of fire. And, and, and you heard this from the reading, but Revelation 19, 20, here, it's on the screen. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who's in the presence had done the signs. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. 
There's no unconscious state. You're not knocked out. You're not drugged up. There's no soul sleep. All who are in hell are fully awake. They are alert and conscious. They're immersed in fire, engulfed in fire. They're unable to swim out of this lake of fire. They're drowning in fire. This is not symbolic. It is literal. And the picture represents the reality of what it portrays. I mean, can you imagine how unloving it would be if Jesus said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a parent who threatens a kid. You know, come on, parents, you've all done this. If you don't do this, I'm going to do that. And there are times, if you're honest, that you don't always follow through with that. If you don't clean your room, you're not going to get to play that game. And an hour later, they haven't cleaned their room, but because they're whining so much, you let them play the game, right? Come on, you've all been there before. And you know it's not right, but we do it because we get weak sometimes. But God isn't like us. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, Nelson read this, Revelation 20:15. he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's sobering. God's not going to say, okay, okay, I was just bluffing. I was just kidding, really, psych, time out. I, w- I really didn't mean that. Go on into heaven. He means what he says, and he says what he means. Number seven, hell is a fiery furnace. It's a lake of fire, but it's also unquenchable fire. Matthew three twelve, and you'll see this on the screen. Sorry, the, uh, I had trouble expanding these this week, but this is John the Baptist speaking. It says his winnowing fork, speaking of Jesus, is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning it up with the shaft with unquenchable fire. It's never to be turned out. The eternal fire will maintain forever and ever and ever. Jesus wasn't joking. He cared about us enough to tell us these truths, Matthew 3, 12. And, and another aspect of this, hell is eternal fire. This is similar to the previous point, that it's unquenchable. But however, there's no end to the age of the come. It will go on forever and ever. There is a belief out there among well-meaning Christians that some people say, and I'll give you the big word just so you can take it home and impress your friends, but it's called annihilationalism. In other words, God will eventually at some undetermined time just say, that's enough punishment, and they cease to exist. Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, other groups that are a little off the beaten path would believe in such things, but even some mainstream Christians believe this. Why? Because if we're honest with ourselves, as you're sitting there today, it's probably very hard to think about people suffering forever and ever and ever and ever. So we've softened the message a little bit. We said, well, we'll just, we'll just kind of play the hand of God ourselves and just say this, that, or the other. But friends, let me tell you that where hell is spoken of, it always speaks of it being eternal, forever. Just as heaven is always spoken of it being forever and ever and ever. It never goes away. Number nine, hell is day and night. Revelation fourteen eleven. It says, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast or its image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. There's no vacation days in hell. There's no sick days in hell. There's no easy button in hell. There's no I slept at a holiday inn last night. There's none of that stuff. We do not want to know what it's like. It is unceasing torment, just as in heaven. Praise God. Jesus doesn't say, time out, guys. Oh, you got to go back to earth. You can't praise me right now. 
that, that Jesus says, forever you get to worship me. And on the same side, we get the opportunity to worship him. And so it is on the other side. Someone may say, well, that's not fair. Guys, we don't want fair. Fair was dealt with at the cross, and when Jesus said, it is finished, fair was taken on his son. That the, the sinless one who deserved no death died in our place, that we could avoid this place. Fair is that we all go to hell forever, and God is glorified no matter what. Number 10, hell is unmitigated. Hell is unmitigated. That is, it's never moderated. It's always severe. It's always intense. Luke 16, 28 on the screen says, I ha-, this is the, the, the rich man speaking to Lazarus in the parable Jesus told, I have five brothers. I warned them so that they would not come here to the place of torment when they die. Matthew 13, 42 and 50 says it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I submit to you, church, this morning, and I had trouble pinning this statement because it, it, it just shakes you to the core. But all the weeping, all the crying, all the, the tears shed in the history of the world from wars, from deaths, from families, doesn't begin to compare to a drop of those who are in People who are in hell aren't repenting for their sin. There's no purgatory. There's no second chance. If you don't get it right in this life, you are there forever. It's unmitigated. Rather, these people, and I think we get this from Scripture, these people are angrier at God than when they were alive on earth. They are at a breaking point, but they're never able to be broken. Everyone is screaming and crying out. And that is God's Word. All the weeping in the history of the world doesn't begin to compare to those who are in hell. Number 11, hell is outer darkness. Hell is outer darkness. Matthew 22, 13, and this is Jesus speaking. He said, that, speaking in parable, Then the king said to his servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the place of outer darkness in where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The panic of being blind and not being able to see is one thing. Those in hell will live in existence of outer darkness. They'll never be able to see anything with their eyes from what we know of Scripture. R.C. Sproul, if you, he died last December, but if you're looking for a great read, R.C. Sproul, the great theologian, said you can't think about hell for long without going insane. I think that's true. Number 12, hell is conscious awareness. Hell is not only outer darkness, but hell is conscious awareness. One's mind will never be more active. One's mind will never be more alert or sharp than when he or she finds them placed in the bowels of hell. Luke 16, 25, But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here and comforted and you are in anguish. Those in hell will be replaying. There's a sense that they will replay for the rest of their lives every opportunity that God gave them to hear the gospel. That God sent them a, a gospel tract. And, you know, someone left one. You know, you see those gospel tracts in, in the gas stations, the bathrooms. I've told you before, we used to stuff them in the beer bottles at Hy-Vee when no one was looking. Don't do that. That's just youthfulness. But 
You get the gospel out, right? That's what you're called to do. But people will be replaying in their minds every chance God gave them to heard the gospel. Maybe they came to a vacation Bible school. Maybe they came to a sermon like this. Maybe it was a conversation. They read something. They heard something. You name it. But they will always have conscious awareness, as did a, uh, this man, uh, Lazarus, or excuse me, this man in, in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, that he said, go and tell my family. Because he is replaying this. Don't let them come down here. It's terrible. But such opportunities will haunt them forever and ever and ever. Number 13, hell is an inescapable pit. You know, if it was a Hollywood movie, there would be a trap door somewhere, you know, if you just got the timing of the gears right and you, the guards go on this duty at this time and maybe if we get out here and we watch it for a while, we get their routine down. But hell is so deep that one cannot crawl out or find the bottom of the flames of it. There are many roads that lead to hell, but none that lead out. The doors are locked and the key is thrown away. There's no parole. There's no time off. There's no weekend leave. There's no family visits. It is forever. Revelation 9-2, And he opened the bottomless pit, speaking of Christ, and there arose smoke out of the pit, and the smoke of the great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the reason of the smoke of the pit. Two more. Number 14. Hell is easily accessed. Just think about that for a second. Hell is easily accessed. You have to strive, the Bible says, to go through the narrow gate. You have to believe to get to heaven that Jesus is the only way. You ever think about how foolish that is? How crazy that is? To believe on Jesus as the only way to heaven? You have to throw your everything to say, Jesus, you're Lord, you're Savior, you're the resurrected one, the glorious one. Yet it is easy to go to hell. John 3, 36. He who believed in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. What do you have to do to go to hell? Nothing. Yeah. Literally, you do nothing. If you're an unbeliever, you just remain where you are. If you're an unbeliever, you're already headed that way when you refuse to believe that Jesus loved you, that God loved the world so much that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believe on Him shall not perish but have eternal and everlasting life. It's very easy to go to hell. Do nothing. Do lots of things. Either way, without Jesus, it is easily accessed. And number 15, hell must be avoided. Luke 16, 27, again, the rich man and Lazarus, the parable you can read about in Luke 16, 19 through 31, just a quote out of there. Luke 16, 27, then the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, send him, send somebody to my father's home. Send somebody there. Go tell them how terrible this place is. Go tell them that you don't want to come here. But such truths about hell call for a dealing with sin. As we read, if, if you have your Bible open, if you go back to Mark chapter 9, you go back to the verses that we read a couple weeks ago. Uh, Jesus said, it's better uh, to lose your hand than enter into hell, verse 43. 
Mark 9, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter lame than two feet into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, verse 47, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one than with two eyes and head to hell. It's better to lose a part of your body now than the alternative. There are books this thick that talk about this topic. You've gotten 15. How do you feel about this? Does it change your view of God any? It shouldn't if you're a Christian. Let me give you some takeaways as we go. I know this is a different topic. This is not how we usually preach through, but I want you to see this. What is? Can God be glorified in hell? Can God receive praise for people going to hell? Let me give you, and I'm going to throw these up. We've got a few more minutes here. Uh, I told Amy we get as far as we get, but let's go as far as we can, Amy, and we'll go from there. Number one, how does hell glorify God? Number one, it shows that He keeps His word. Amen? Would you like to get to heaven someday and stand at those pearly gates and, and, and God just says, man, <laughs> I got you. Joke's on you. You would just, you would be beside yourself, wouldn't you? I don't know what you'd do because you're dead, but you'd be beside yourself. You would say, I believe this stuff for a lie. That's why I keep relating everything to heaven because what you see in heaven is exactly opposite what you see in hell, but the same God is driving both. God cannot lie. He said this is going to happen. It's going to happen. He said He's coming again. He will come again. Number two, His infinite worth lasts forever. Shows us that God is glorified through that, that, that God is worthy to be praised. His judgments are true. His wrath is right. God can be praised for giving us hell for those who reject Christ because He alone is worthy of praise. And if He says that's what needs to happen because that's against His, uh, people have gone against His character, then that's what they need to do. Number three, and if you're a Christian, you should rejoice at this. Hell glorifies God because it shows that He has power to subdue all who rebel against Him. Don't you love those verses from Philippians? At the name of Muhammad? At the name of Buddha? At the name of President fill-in-the-blank, whoever it is we elect every four years? At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, whether above the earth, under the earth, everybody, so that he will put all his enemies under his footstool. Guys, we win because Christ has already won. And if hell is not real, and if hell does not glorify God, then that basically, you can rip that verse Thomas Jefferson-like out of the Bible, because it doesn't need to be there. Number four, hell glorifies God because it shows how unspeakably merciful He is to those who trust in Him. What an awesome God we serve. That even though we have rebelled against Him, we're enemies of Him, He loved us. He gave us warning. Not only did He give us warning, He gave us His Holy Spirit to draw us to Himself and believe the gospel. How glorifies God, number five, because the reality of love visits justice against those reject God who is love. We kind of hit on that earlier, but can you imagine if God said, yeah, you're going to be punished forever and not carry it through? That's not consistent with who He is. It's not consistent at all for who He is is. I just want to take a side note, as I know some of you are taking notes, we're about ready to switch the slide, but do you realize how critically important it is 
that we can't just take pieces of this Bible and apply it how we want, when we want. That this is God's holy word. This is his amazing word that everything it says in here is exactly what we need, isn't it? Isn't that amazing? Because there are those well-meaning folks who would rather not talk about these things because they won't drive up the offering plate. They won't draw people in. They might honestly scare people away. But if someone is not willing to preach the gospel fully, including hell, then that person isn't a preacher, they're a, they're a, they're a yapper. And you know what yapping dogs are. They're just little annoying dogs that bite your shin and take your shoes and all those sorts of things, including your money if you let them. And they're called TV-wasted preachers, most of them. But hell glorifies God, number six, because vindication comes to all those who suffered for the gospel. We send out missionaries. We've sent out, I can't say their names because we're on Facebook Live right now, but, but, but we've sent out several from our church this year. To, for what purpose? To go and share the gospel? But if hell's not real, why are they going? What's the purpose? Are they just glorified peacekeepers in the name of Jesus? Peace Corps? No, they have a message, don't they? They go because there are souls who need Jesus, and they go because there are people who will die in their sins without Jesus. And those who suffer for the gospel, whether here or, or across the world, do so because they now have the opportunity to say, Lord, all this was for you. Number seven, the enormity of what Jesus accomplished when he died glorifies God to save those who would trust him from the hell they deserved. God is glorified because of all that Jesus did and the love he showed. And number eight, and I'll end with this, if there were no hell, there would be no need for the cross. Why did Jesus die? Well, Darren, Jesus just died to be a good example for us. And if we just follow his example, we have a good one. You know, he, he served people and I'm going to write a book about, about servant leadership and, 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 and make it a bestseller, and, and that's wonderful. Or, 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 you know, Jesus died to show that it's, it's, and I'm being sarcastic here, he died to show that, that we just need to give our lives for other people. And those are true to some degree. But the reason Jesus died is that we were under the wrath of God and only by Him, through Him, in Him, and to Him, could we be saved except through Him. Amen? Actually, Amy, the last two can go up, and if you're taking notes, we'll get these out over email. Hell glorifies God because it shows whom we fear. We either fear the treasure of heaven or the terror of hell. If you're a Christian, you don't need to be worried about going to hell. If you've trusted in Jesus, you are secure as Christ is secure in the union with the Father, and number 10, Christian, if you've ever wanted a reason to push forward with your faith, it is because hell is real. You can almost hear a pin drop in this, this church right now. It's a tough topic. But guys, this is the Word of God. May we tremble at it. May we rest under it. And in just a moment, we get to take the Lord's Supper together and celebrate that Jesus has overcome death, that He is the resurrection and the life, the first, the last, the beginning and the end. And if you're in Christ, this is not for you.
praise God. But if you're not in Christ, what are you waiting for? Repent, turn from your sin, and believe on Jesus who loved you so much. Would you pray that as you read through the Bible, you say, Lord, there are parts that, you know, someone asked me this week, said, Darren, what if I don't like the doctrine of hell? What if I just don't like it? What if I really struggle with it? You know, it's okay to struggle with this. Can I be honest with you? It's okay to struggle with this. You should struggle with this, Christian. You're human after all. There's a difference of me going up to my Christian friend and saying, yeah, I struggle with this. I can't believe that's in there. I just believe it because Jesus said it. Then saying, you know, I, I do struggle with it. It's tough. It is. And I completely understand where you're coming from. But let me tell you that Jesus loved me so much. I'm grateful that he told me about this. If you're struggling with this today, you are one of every Christian that's ever walked through the narrow gate. Pray for wisdom, pray for discernment, but pray you don't chuck the Word of God for cultural or whatever else is out there. Will you pray with me this morning? Father God, as we come before you and get ready to sing our last song before the Lord's Supper, as the deacons come in just a moment and all those things, Father, this is not something that, uh, Father, this is a tough topic, but I thank you that your Word is abundantly clear on it. Father, as we come, I, I pray this has been done not in a spirit of, of, of pride or, or overness, but Father, I pray we have approached this with humility. Forgive me if I have not. Father, I, I pray we've approached this with a way that is sobering. But Father, also I pray that as a church we approach this topic with great joy, not for anyone to go to hell necessarily, Lord, but great joy because you have told us about it. You've given us a way out of it. And Lord, you have given us the, the, the opportunity to share about it so that all those who would hear, and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, that they may respond by your grace. How can they hear without a preacher? How can they hear without anyone sending them? Father, I pray we're faithful to the task. Father, thank you. It's not us who convert hearts, it's yours. Let us be faithful and lay it at your feet. We pray for all those in our lives, for family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, whomever, that we have shared the gospel with, that, Lord, you do the work that you do, and, Lord, let us be faithful. Thank you for this dear church, Lord. Thank you for the joys of knowing your Son. We love you so much, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do you join us in standing as we uh, sing our last song here and prepare for the Lord's Supper together? I'm going to ask the deacons, gentlemen, if you want to come down this way, that would be greatly appreciated. And if you're here this morning and you want to know more about Jesus, uh, Brother Nelson and I are going to be up front here. Uh, if, you, if you'd like to pray, we'll be up front this time. It's open to you. Come down. We'd love to have you with us. But may we sing loud uh, our last song this morning.